Welcome to episode three of Recreational Thinking. Our guests are Jacob Myers, Ryan Rosenberg, and Amanda Walker. Now, each episode has an order, which is arbitrary, but it's going to be kept to for the entire episode. This one is Amanda, Ryan, Jacob. So in that order, can you each briefly state where you're Skyping from and just one sentence about yourself you'd like people to hear? Hi, I'm Amanda Walker. I am Skyping to you from Monroe, Wisconsin, where I just recently moved for a journalism job. Uh, my name's Ryan Rosenberg. I'm Skyping in from Chicago, Illinois. And I'm still recovering from a bit of a cold, so if I sound like I have a cold, that's why. I'm Skyping from scenic Lansing, Michigan, where I am a student in history, Arabic, and geographic information science at Michigan State University. All right, so this game is going to be in four rounds, one individual and three specialists. So the first round I call the three R's round. It allows me to reduce, reuse, and recycle questions I've written before. This round functions both as a warm-up and these questions will be worth a tenth of a point as tiebreakers if necessary. And so for this round only, each of you will only answer as individuals, so it'll go sequentially. If the first person the question is directed at misses, the second gets a chance to answer. If they both miss, the third does. So the further along you are in the sequence, the less of a direct shot you have at answering, but the more time you have to think, and a few potential answers could be taken off the table. And we'll rotate so each of you gets to be in first position three times, second three times, third three times. And then after that, I'll explain the rules for the next three rounds, which will be a bit different. We'll start with Amanda in first position. First question. The Seinfeld episode, The Boyfriend, famously spoofs the magic bullet scene in Oliver Stone's JFK with the discussion of the magic loogie. What actor appeared in both the parody scene in Seinfeld and the original scene in JFK? Oh, gosh. Um, and I didn't hear what you said. What did you say? Did you say loogie? Loogie. Loogie. Okay. Uh, <laughs> uh, I don't have any idea, so uh, I'm going to just say Patrick Warburton. All right. Leave Ryan's next in order. Ryan? All right. I also have no idea. Um, so it's somebody who would be in both JFK and Seinfeld. Uh, let's say, I don't know, Christopher Walken. <laughs> All right. Jacob? Uh, this is the sort of posture I'm terrible at. It's it's probably not any of the main Seinfeld cast members. Uh, so not Larry David, not Julia Louis Dreyfus. Uh, God, who starred in JFK? I know it was an Oliver Stone movie. Like maybe Brad Pitt. I don't know. I'll just go with Jerry Seinfeld. All right. So your uh your instinct at least to uh to go just to the peripheral Seinfeld cast was a good one. It wasn't any of the four main cast members, but if there was a fifth cast member who could be thought of as regular, it would be Wayne Knight, who played Newman. Oh! Uh, I believe he was also in the original of the uh, Basic Instinct interrogation scene, which was also parodied with him in the scene on Seinfeld. The second question goes first to Ryan. Before she was the only Chernobyl star to not receive an Emmy nomination, Jesse Buckley entered the public eye as runner-up on the 2008 reality competition's I Do Anything, which saw her vie to play which musical theater role in West End Revival. Hmm, okay. Again, not something I know cold, but it's a 2008 musical revival. I Do Anything, so some odd role. Um... A famous musical that would be there then. Um, I don't know. Let's say, let's say Nala. I repeat that. Nala from The Lion King. Uh, that's a good guess, but uh, incorrect. So it goes to Jacob next. Yeah, I also have no idea what's happening, like in terms of 2008 musicals, revivals. Uh, but I think Ryan's thinking that it's some sort of weird role would be correct. Um, I don't know. Like, 
what musicals would have been getting revived at the time. I know there was a SpongeBob musical, but I'm certain that was more recent, but I'm just going to go Mr. Krabs. All right, that's incorrect. Amanda? Uh, I also do not know. I'm trying to think of musicals at revival or around that time. When I heard I'd do anything, I thought of the anything you can do, I can do better, but I don't know the name of the female lead in Oklahoma, so that doesn't help me, but that's probably wrong anyway. So uh, I will say Sarah Brown from Guys Right. One of our previous episodes had people who were really good at musical theater, but I guess not here. Um, I think that's <laughs> anything you can do. I think, isn't that from Annie Get Your Gun? I'm not sure about that, but um, I don't maybe, think so. Maybe it actually, you know, it might be. I confuse those two sometimes. All right. But um, I Do Anything is one of the more famous songs from a musical that was made into a film that won the Academy Award for Best Picture. It was called Oliver, and the main female role in that is Nancy. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Well, so far we've hit sure. a bunch of categories where I'm not very strong in, so hopefully yeah. it wins out. All right, I think Jacob goes first in the next one. Yeah. The name of diabetes derived from one of its most noticeable symptoms, excessive discharge of urine. The medical term for the disease, diabetes mellitus, refers specifically to what characteristic of said urine. Oh, what did you say? Diabetes what? Mellitus or mellitus. Oh. How do you spell that? So now, I took, a, I, I took a semester of Greek when I was in high school. So um, it, I, I know like mellis is like Greek for honey. So, and I also know diabetic urine is often sweet since like that's how the disease was discovered, I think. So, someone went around tasting diabetics pee. So I'm going to say that urine is sweet. Are you, okay, so can you be a little more specific on that? Uh, the urine tastes like honey. So yeah, basically the, um yeah, when I asked this before, some people guessed that it was the sweet smell of it. So I wanted to make sure you were going at the taste. According to Wikipedia, it was Thomas Willis who in 1675 added Melitus to diabetes as a designation for the disease when he noticed the urine of a person with diabetes had a sweet taste. This sweet taste had been noticed in urine by the ancient Greeks, Chinese, Egyptians, Indians, and Persians. And that first sentence raises a few questions. Second sentence raises a lot of questions. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> it really does. All right, but yes, that is correct. It is the sweet taste, so that goes to uh, correct for Jacob. Next one starts with Ryan. Jim, uh, start with Amanda. Right? I think so. You're right. It does start with Amanda. Thanks, Thank Ryan. You for, <laughs> thank you for the correction. Amanda, gymnast Rosie McLennan, Canada's flag bearer in the opening ceremony of the 2016 Summer Olympics, won gold in which specific event in 2012 and 2016? Oh, gosh. Gymnastics is one of my favorite Olympic events to watch, but okay. So I love gymnastics, but that name is not ringing a bell for me right off. She was a flag bearer, and you didn't say what country or anything else, did you? Canada, from Canada. Oh, Canada. Thank you. I did not hear that before. I don't know if that'll help. 2016 was the most recent summer, and you said she won gold then and 2012. Yeah, both of those. Um. Okay. I'm, I'm trying to eliminate things that I think that Simone Biles does because I feel like she dominated at least some events. Um, I'm going to say the uneven bars. All right, uneven bars. Good guess, yeah. but incorrect. Brian? It's a bad time to go first because there's a lot of events. <laughs> Yeah, there's a lot of events, and so I think I'm fairly regular in watching the like the U.S. the artistic gymnastic event. I think it's artistic, so I'm I'm actually thinking this might be rhythmic gymnastics. Um, so I don't really know that many rhythmic gymnastic events, so I'm gonna say trampoline. All right, so you're saying uh, you're locking in trampoline? Yes. 
Right, so in the uh, the Olympic hierarchy, it goes sport, discipline, event. So gymnastics, people often equate it just with artistic gymnastics, but that's actually just one of the three disciplines in it. Another is rhythmic gymnastics, which has two events, both only for women. I think it's one of only two classes of events, along with synchronized swimming, that only women compete in. But that's just an individual and a team. The third discipline in gymnastics, which is not part of rhythmic or artistic, is trampoline. And that is, in fact, oh. what really Oh, okay. Great. Nice. <laughs> Good job, Ryan. There we go. All right. So one for uh, Jacob, one for Ryan, and the next question starts with Ryan. How many Grand Slam titles did Anna Kornikova win during her tennis career? Mm, I definitely don't know this right off. Um, my instinct and in, like if this were a normal bar trivia would just be to say zero. But given yeah. that this is a trivia podcast, uh, <laughs> I feel like the question might be significantly harder than that. But honestly, I don't really have any better guesses. I guess, yeah. I mean, I'm not very confident in zero, but I'm not super confident in anything else, really. So I'll say zero. All right. So often at the, the height of her fame, uh, Anna Kornikova was probably the world's most famous female tennis player, sometimes described as the most searched for woman on the internet. And many people tried to mock her saying that you know, she had all that fame and had no Grand Slam titles. But as you deduced, this question's a little bit harder. So that is not correct. Uh, so it goes to Jacob next. All right. So my my instinct was also to assume that you were trying to that you were trying to pull a fast one on us and say zero. So my first so Ryan eliminated my first guess. So but based on what you said afterward, it makes me think her number is still reasonably low. So I will go with two. So uh, the the twist here was that although Anna Kornikova never made it past the semifinals of a singles Grand Slam event, she was actually at one point ranked the number one women's doubles tennis player in the world. She actually twice reached a Grand Slam final in mixed doubles, but it was in women's doubles that she and her partner Martina Hingis, the self-proclaimed Spice Girls of tennis, twice won the Australian Open. So two is correct. All right. I had no idea about any of that. All right, yeah. So that's two for Jacob, one for Ryan, and the next question will start with Jacob. The Royal Sign Manual, or signature, of Britain's monarch currently concludes with the letter R for the Latin Rex or Regina. However, from 1877 to 1948, that signature instead contained the letters R-I. What 1947 event led to the disuse of the I? All right, so when you said 1948 and I, that, that, that led me in a very specific direction, and that and, and that is to think that that's the year when India became independent, notable thing that starts with I. So I will say India's independence, final answer. So in, in R-I, the R stands for Rex or Regina. The I actually stands for Imperator or Imperatrix, which is Latin for Emperor or Empress, because Queen Victoria in 1877 officially became the Empress of India. So it is, in fact, the independence of India that led to the disuse of that title, although the I does not stand for India. All right, Getty ate my way into that one. <laughs> All right, so I think that's two for Ryan and two for Jacob, and the next yeah, one. It's three for Jacob, one for me. All right, yeah, that's, and then the next one will start with Amanda. This is the this is the last cycle, so we each get first shot at one more question in this round. Which celebrated chef helped cooked Werner Herzog's shoe at her Chez Panisse restaurant in Berkeley in order to help Herzog fulfill a promise he made to Errol Morris. Ugh. 
I think I think I know who this person is because I think it's also the person who did the egg spoon that there was a big controversy about. There was like kind of making fun of the, you know, why do you need some fancy William Sonoma egg spoon to cook something over the fire? Um, probably I don't remember her name. Mm. Well, you ever get a name in your head and you're like, I don't know if this is related to this thing or someone from an entire other discipline entirely. Um, that is the case that I'm experiencing now. I will say Alice Monroe. All right, you're saying Alice Monroe locking in? Yeah. All right, that's incorrect. Ryan? This is actually something I know straight out. My girlfriend and I have been talking about going to Chez Panisse at some time because she lives in the Bay Area and we have watched Salt, Fat, Acid, Heat together and Samin Nasserat got her start at Chez Panisse. This is Alice Waters. Finally. So I had Alice in my head for a good reason. Yeah, I think, Amanda, you were thinking of exactly the right person with the iron egg spoon. And uh, Alice Monroe is a Canadian author. Alice Walker <laughs> is an American author. Alice Waters is the chef. So Ryan uh, has that right. All right, next one starts with uh, Ryan. Don't make me doubt your commitment to answering this question. Long before her memorable cameo in John Wick Chapter 3 Parabellum, New York City ballet principal dancer Tyler Peck made her feature film debut in what cult classic movie? Okay, well, this is not the John Wick Chapter 3 cameo I really know about. Um, What cult classic? I don't know. Uh, God. Let's pick a cult classic movie. Uh, Wayne's World, final answer. Wayne's World, all right, incorrect. Uh, Jacob? Oh, I'm sorry, could you repeat the question? Yes. Don't make me doubt your commitment to answering this question. Long before her memorable cameo in John Wick Chapter 3 Parabellum, New York City ballet principal dancer Tyler Peck made her feature film debut in what cult classic movie? Oh, crap. So I know you're referencing the line, like, I, you're, you're making me doubt your commitment to sparkle motion, which, like, I think that's from Donnie Darko. Like, I, I, I had a book as a kid that, like, had a collection of a lot of reasonably famous cult movie quotes, and that was in it. But I, I know the character is named Kitty. I'm reasonably certain it's Donnie Darko. I'll go with that. All right. You're locking in Donnie Darko? Yes. So that, yeah, that line was delivered by uh, actress Beth Grant. I actually once went to an uh, event at, like, the University Film Society uh, in Austin where she was going to speak, and she ended up getting delayed, and she came, like, a half an hour late, and a bunch of us were still lined up to get in. And when she saw us, she said, I, I don't doubt any of your commitment to Sparkle Motion. Uh, <laughs> But uh, in the film, Sparkle Motion was a little girl's dance troupe, and one of those little girls is now a prima ballerina at New York City Ballet, Tyler Peck, and Downey Darko is the film. (laughs) And now, last one, starting with Jacob, uh, probably the hardest one in this round. With a population of (laughs) just... With a population of just over 50,000, the town of Hamilton, Scotland, has produced two actors who portrayed Columbo villains. Ian Buchanan was one. The other was what once brilliant alcoholic thespian known for on-screen depictions of Hamlet and Sherlock Holmes, whose tragicomic downfall is detailed in Paul Rudnick's 2007 New Yorker humor piece, I Hit Hamlet. Oh my god. Now, I quit watching Columbo on Netflix about midway through the first season, and now I'm beginning to regret that. Um, and for multiple so, I, 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 gotta, I gotta tell you, I haven't read the New Yorker piece. I have no idea who this could be, so I'm just gonna go with, like, a very stereotypical Scottish name. Let's go Archibald McTavish. <laughs> All right. I think I always guess something if you don't know, so you did guess, but uh, that's unsurprisingly not correct. Uh, Amanda? 
This is another thing that I think I've heard about that I hit Hamlet thing. And I've seen that kind of thing spoofed. Like they, they spoofed it on Friends, like when Joey was trying to get to the wedding that he was with like some really good actor that was drunk and just couldn't get through the scene. Um, gosh darn it. Where's Gary Marshall drumming when I need him? Um, <laughs> Uh, I'll, I'll just say John Gielgud. All right. And Brian is last on that. Uh, likewise, no idea. So I will guess a Scottish name, uh, Thompson. All right. So this was one of my favorite uh, on-screen Sherlock Holmes and also a very notably eccentric but brilliant Hamlet um, in the 1969 Tony Richardson film. One of someone who had the potential to be one of our greatest actors, but incredibly self-destructive. And that came to a head in Paul Rutnick's play, I Hate Hamlet, uh, in which he played John Barrymore and legendarily was drunk all the time and created a bunch of, perhaps in retrospect amusing, but at the time kind of dangerous situations. And his name was Nickel Williamson. He played Sherlock Holmes in the 7% Solution. All right. So yep, that, that's Scottish. <laughs> okay, so then I think that's what, uh, zero for Amanda, um, what was it, two for Ryan, and four for Jacob? That's mm-hmm. what I have. Okay. Yep. All right. So now now going into the, the first round of the uh, main competition, I'm still working out the calibration, but I've been calling these the not all that hard round, only somewhat hard round and the uh, super hard round. So this one should hopefully be the easiest of them. In this round, the rules are a bit different. Each of you is going to get three specialist questions related to your categories. But again, this is not intended to be a fair or comprehensive test of your knowledge of these categories. The questions may relate directly or obliquely. Um, and to keep everyone on their toes, I won't reveal the categories, although I think you, you all kind of talked about, about them among yourselves before the king. All right. <laughs> So the twist in this, before you get to answer your specialist question, your opponents can work together to try and steal the points from you, and you only get a chance to answer four points if your opponent misses. Sometimes in later rounds, especially (laughs) rounds, I might try and build suspense by passing the question to you without telling you if they got it wrong. In those cases, you should just act as though they got it wrong, since if they got it right, there's no way you'll get points. There's one more twist to the format that um, Jacob and Amanda have some knowledge of, but it'll, it'll be revealed if it becomes relevant. So this and in this round, the questions being not all that hard will be worth two points as a steal. One is a specialist, and the points, full points, will be awarded to both stealers, even if only one of them knew the answer. Okay. All right. So this first question goes to Ryan and Jacob trying to steal from Amanda. And this is what I called last time a solve for X question, not algebra, but I've redacted a certain word or phrase with an X, and it's your job to figure out what goes in that spot where the X is. Sounds good. All right. So the first season of The Good Place caused many critics to draw comparisons to X. Entertainment Weekly said, it's the hell is other people idea of Sartre's no exit spliced with X. The AV Club wrote, it's Parks and Recreation taking place on the Lost Island, or X substituting Stars Hollow for the village. And Vulture said, stylistically, The Good Place owes a lot to X, a sci-fi mystery show that ran in England in the 1960s. Like The Good Place, X was an ontological mystery, a story where the characters don't know where they are or how they got there. What is X? All right. Okay, uh, so... Um, I take it neither of us know this straight off. I certainly do not. Okay. Crap, so it might be that show where, like... I know this is, like, vaguely 60s-ish and British. So yeah. Like, it might be that show where, like, Patrick McGowan plays, like, the prisoner who doesn't know how he got there. Oh. Um, what, 
but what, is it like called Number Six or something? That sounds vaguely familiar. Like that this show exists. I know nothing about it. I don't. The sci-fi thing has kind of thrown me off. I don't really know many '60s sci-fi stuff. That's not like you know the Twilight Zone. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I I think we have to say something. I, um, I have absolutely no better guess. So yeah, let's say that. All right. What All are right. we locking? Number six. In number six. All right. Amanda? Um, well, I actually didn't know. Like, I was like, I was trying to think of shows that I would compare it to. Then when it said 60s British, I was like, I know almost nothing about 60s British television. But then when he said The Prisoner Who Doesn't Know Who He Is or How He Got There, I think there was a show called The Prisoner, but that might be an American show. I'll say The Prisoner. All right. So the, uh, the show in which Patrick McGowan played a prisoner who was called Number Six and woke up in the village with no idea of how he got there. It was not called Number Six. It was, in fact, called The Prisoner. Yeah. Ah, damn it. Oh, well. Thank you for the help, Jacob. Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah. (laughs) So that will send one point to Amanda, and Jacob and Ryan will remain with their decimals. Now, this next one goes to Amanda and Jacob trying to steal from Ryan. All All right. In 2015, the editors of the peer-reviewed scientific journal Basic and Applied Social Psychology made headlines by banning conclusions based on what statistical procedure known by a four-letter acronym from their journal. I will also accept the name of the specific statistic most associated with that procedure. Huh. So this, so this is the one of Ryan's topics that I know absolutely nothing about. Um, okay. It's I know like one of the big data integrity things is like peaking, but I'm fairly certain this isn't what that is. What did you say? You cut out a little bit. So I know one of the big like concerns for data integrity that's like sort that's like sort of a shortcut that would compromise integrity is like p hacking, but I uh-huh. don't think that's this or maybe this is something related to that i don't know i mean the first thing but that like, came to my mind in terms of the stat was a p value so that's not four letters though but i have no better guess than that no i know but he's like also accept the name of the stat so if it's p value or if it's p hacking or something maybe it's well, I I don't think they would outright ban p-values. Like, that's reasonably foundational to the field. Right, because <laughs> it's a statistic. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, I don't know. The only four-letter acronym I remember from AP stat is LSRL, but I don't think they'd ban that either. Like, least <laughs> squares regression lines are also reasonably foundational. Uh-huh. But well, I don't know. Do you want to just say that? I mean, do I want to just say the, the four-letter acronym, you know? Yeah, like or LSRL. Sure. I don't... I I don't know. Sure, let's do that. Okay. All right. Locking in LSRO? LSRL. LSRO, you said? LSRL. Oh, LSRL. Okay. Yeah. All right. Ryan? Okay. Well, I was thinking about P, like p-values and p-hacking, but I'm not really sure what four-letter technique will be associated with that. Um, and honestly, I'm kind of at a loss for many four-letter statistical techniques. Um, the main one I can think of is MCMC or Markov chain Monte Carlo sampling, but that's not that's also not something that would really be banned. I don't think. Um, seems and it doesn't really have an associated statistic I and mean, it could have an associated statistic i i would just be i'll be kind of confused as to why they did that but i mean i guess i can reason out a framework for that i'm still i still have no idea which four letter acronym would be associated with p-values even though banning the use of p-values seems more likely than banning mcmc sampling um 
remember, you're allowed to answer with either the four-letter acronym or the statistic. Yep. Um... Okay, I guess I'll I'll be surprised if we're it would be I would be more surprised if it were MCMC than if it were p values. So I'm just gonna say p values. Final okay. answer. All right. So the chief editor of BASP at that time, David Trofimo, was my academic advisor. So I can tell you, as you said, as uh, Jacob said, p values are extremely fundamental to behavioral science. Most people would be very timid about banning them entirely. Dr. Trofimo is not timid. He, in, not only is p-hacking an issue, but there's also kind of the, the question of what the p-value is aimed at, which Jordan Ellenberg discusses in a chapter on how not to be wrong. So there are multiple issues with it and with the null hypothesis significance testing procedure that it's associated with, or NHST. So uh, what was banned from there was any statistics associated with NHST, but most specifically the p-value. So... <laughs> I, okay. Oh, God. Sorry, Amanda. It, it happens. Huh. Right. Yeah, I've never heard null hypothesis significance testing referred to as NHST. But well, it, it, was, it is definitely a technique. When it was discussed on Twitter, people were trying to save characters, so that acronym popped up a lot. Okay. All right, so that's one point for Ryan, and the next one goes to Ryan and Amanda trying to steal from Jacob. Simple uh, one-sentence question. Who is Wyoming's current at-large U.S. representative? Okay, well, I might know who their senators are. Uh, At-large representative. I'm pretty sure the senators are John Barrasso and maybe Mike Enzi. But wow. Yeah. Well, <laughs> senators are both more important and easier to remember than representatives. Uh, yeah. So I don't think I know this straight off. I and don't either. there's, can say, a, you know, Wyoming-esque name. Yeah. Uh... If I had taken a job in Wyoming instead of Wisconsin, I'd probably know this. <laughs> yeah. Well, <laughs> because I'll I know see. my representative in Wisconsin. I met him on Monday. Oh, and... wow. Nice. <laughs> yeah. It wasn't the guy from the real world, was it? Uh, no, it wasn't. For the record, his name is Mark Pocan. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I have a friend from college who lives in Madison. Mark Pocan is a king. Yeah. Likes him a lot. Yeah. Yeah, I like. Yeah, I liked him a lot. So that's I got a I got a good feeling from him. Yeah. So yeah. So that's not helpful at all. But yeah. Now, you know, padded but, with some missing talk, I guess. But now you're honored, so you know you'll. Yeah. Uh. Okay. So what's a what's a plausible last name? Um. You know, Johnson. Let's say Thompson again. Oh, Lucky Johnson. The Lucky. Yeah. Johnson. Sure. Let's say Johnson. Final answer. All right, Johnson. Jacob. Now your Wyoming surname guessing might have paid more might have paid more of a dividend if you'd guessed a very specific Wyoming politics related surname uh, since since the person in question is I believe Dick Cheney's daughter. Oh, uh, Liz Cheney. Uh, so yeah, Liz Cheney. Final answer. All right, it's Liz Cheney. Yeah. The chair of the House Republican Conference, the third most powerful uh, Republican in Congress right now, is the current at-large U.S. representative from Wyoming. So, uh, that yep. makes sense. Oh, well. Oh, well. So this is, uh, for the first time, we've had a initial round with zero steals. Normally, there are three out of three steals. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> I, I definitely That's was not expecting this. Honestly, honestly. <laughs> yeah. 
All right, so now Ryan and Jacob stealing from Amanda. All right. All right. A song called My Smile is Just a Frown Turned Upside Down, written by Smokey Robinson and recorded by a teenage Motown artist named Carolyn Crawford, contains the couplet, Well, you remember, just like blank did, I'll keep my sadness hid. Give the missing word in that line, which I replaced with a blank, which was later recycled by Smokey Robinson as part of a much bigger hit. Just like blank did, I'll keep my sadness hid. Maybe the thing they're referring to is the tears of a clown, and maybe that's Pagliacci? Just like Pagliacci. Uh, yeah, that kind of works. Uh, but Doctor... I, mean, I, I would think it would be two syllable, not three but um like yeah thinking of the other smoky robinson hit is definitely a good strategy yeah like what other smoky robinson songs sorry what other smoky robinson songs could this plausibly be from uh <laughs> like he he wrote a lot of songs about like people hiding their sadness yeah uh very tracks fair. of my tears maybe um tracks of my tears I, I don't or, I don't remember the lyrics to that outside the chorus in enough detail. Who, okay, what about famous people who hid sadness? <laughs> All right, so I, I I know the tune of the verses from Tears of a Clown. Let's see if that gets us anywhere. It's, <laughs> <laughs> Wait a sec. I don't I don't think that really fits. Yeah. But I have no guess. Yeah, I mean I. I'm honestly not gonna think of this, so I'm I'm up for whatever you you're going with. Pagliacci. You're locking in Pagliacci. Sure. So I think usually in Amer- uh, at least many uh, idiomatically, it's often pronounced Pagliacci with the G kind of elided, which brings uh, it a lot closer uh, to two syllables, which uh, enabled uh, Smokey Robinson to sing just like Pagliacci did. I'll try to keep uh, my in Tears of a Clown. So that is the first successful steal of the game. And this is when the twist out comes in. Because a listener, uh, Guy Jordan, suggested in order to keep people from getting too disappointed when their their points get stolen, adding in a bonus question related to it. So if your question gets stolen, you you can answer a bonus for, I guess, half the points of a steal, which in this case is the same as if you answered it normally, but in later rounds will be different. So, uh, Amanda, uh, would you like to take a bonus question related to this topic? Yeah, I believe there's no reason to say no unless there's some kind of hidden penalty. Right. So I'm uh, one of the, the ideas that was suggested was making it kind of a, um, a double or like, I guess, you know, a, a kind of a, a betting thing where you're penalized that number of points if you get it wrong. But I might try that in a future game. This time, I think we'll just stick with the straightforward uh, no penalty for getting it wrong. And I, I appreciate that. It's, it's sad enough to have stuff stolen from you. <laughs> Okay, so here's your bonus. There were three credited songwriters on Tears of a Clown. One of them was Smokey Robinson. Name either of the other two. Okay. Um, I know and love a lot of Motown. I'm trying to think of people who wrote for Motown. I'm not sure if Barry Gordy did any of the writing. I think he might have. Also, possibly Ashford and Simpson. They had their own hit, but I think they were writers for Motown before that. Probably know Marvin Gaye could have also been involved. He did some writing, I think. Oh, you know, I'll... I'll, I'll go. I'll go ahead and say Marvin Gaye. All right, Marvin Gaye. So this is a bonus, so it doesn't get passed over to anyone. So I'll just tell you that's not correct. The uh, as you said, one of the great things about Motown was a sort of uh, collaborative atmosphere there. People often um, shared instead of trying to hog things with themselves, they shared things with others. So when the uh, producer Hank Cosby and a certain artist <coughs> came up with 
an instrumental they really liked. I uh, brought it to a Christmas party and gave it to Smokey Robinson, who attached lyrics and recorded it to make Tears of a Clown. That artist's name was Stevie Wonder. I, I briefly considered him. I, uh, yeah. Yeah, there are other, many great, so many great Motown songwriters to go through. All right, next question goes to Amanda and Jacob trying to steal from Ryan. One of the last times Sarajevo was on the world stage for positive reasons was in 1984, when it hosted the Winter Olympics and saw Jane Torval and Christopher Dean win gold in ice dancing with nearly perfect scores after skating to what, some would say, annoyingly repetitive piece of music. Annoyingly oh my repetitive. God. Well, so the, we... first, the first thing when I think of annoyingly repetitive piece of music is Pachelbel's Cannon, but I don't know, I've, I'm not sure if I can picture people skating to that. I... Yeah, like ice dancing. Dancing is generally more poppy, though, isn't it? Not necessarily. And I, I guess if we're including pop in our field of guesses, which I'm not sure we are, we, we should bear in mind that this has to be released before 1984. Yeah, um, for sure. First thing that yeah. came to my mind before um, you know, Gesh said annoyingly repetitive was the theme from Romeo and Juliet. I don't necessarily have a reason for thinking that. It just popped into my head. So. Um, I don't know what that sounds like and thus can't judge whether it's annoyingly repetitive. But I mean, I don't know. You, you, you seem like you watch more ice dancing than I do. So I, I do. I've actually I've interviewed Meryl Davis and Charlie White for the newspaper before. Oh, wow. oh my God. That's so cool. How are they in person? They were they were friendly. They were um Charlie was much more it was not like live in person. It was over the phone, so I didn't like get to like actually like, you know, meet meet them. Yeah. Charlie was more fun to talk to and seemed more natural, but Meryl was more polished in a better you know, had better, like more contained quotes, but Charlie felt more real to me. So Gotcha. Yeah. So you certainly can go with Packle Bell's canon. I'm I don't have anything better. I mean that's the first thing I thought of an annoyingly repetitive but before annoyingly repetitive was said i thought of a romeo and juliet theme but i can't even necessarily remember what that sounds like and like you said if it's annoyingly repetitive or not yeah um we go with what we know is annoyingly repetitive or what i know someone has skated to at some point uh i don't know annoyingly repetitive seems to be the operative part there so let's go with that okay so you want to say pachelbel's canon sure okay we'll say you're liking pachelbel's canon yeah. Yes. Okay. Ryan? All right. So let's see. There, there is the, there's the decision here of, okay, is it a classical piece? Is it something more recent pop? What would qualify as annoyingly repetitive? So lots of questions here, but I'm thinking I don't really have enough knowledge of like 70s and 80s pop to come up with this if it's going to be a pop song. So I, I kind of have to wager that it's going to be a classical song. And when thinking of classical pieces that are described as repetitive, the first thing that comes to mind is Ravel's Bolero. I don't, I feel like I've heard of people skating to that. I could be very wrong here, but honestly, I have, I don't think I'm going to come to any other answer really easily, especially not if it's a pop song. So I think I'll lock in Bolero. All right. I would say people definitely have skated to that. All right, you're locking in Bolero by Ravel? Yep. All right. And uh, yeah, when I think of uh, annoyingly repetitive uh, orchestral music like that, Bolero is definitely pretty close to the top of the list, and it is the correct answer. Oh, wow. Great. Nice job. Nice job. There we go. 
All right, next one goes to Orion and Amanda trying to steal from Jacob. At the time of his 2009 death, Gabon President Omar Bongo was reportedly the world's longest-serving non-royal national leader. Yeah. In which decade did he first become president? Okay, so world's longest-serving non-royal national leader, Gabon President Omar Bongo. Um, I think it's either the 50s or 60s. I don't remember which. I'm okay. also fairly sure Jacob knows this, so I don't think we should. <laughs> uh, I don't think we should worry about giving him the answer by discussing okay. this. Sure. Um, well, if they say long-serving, I do. I do know this. You were correct. <laughs> Okay, 60s. 60s. Sure, let's go with 60s. Yeah, I'm, I'm thinking 60s because the wave of African independence movements was then. wasn't. Yeah, it's more in the 60s. So yeah, let's say 60s. That sounds good. All right, talking in 1960s. Yes. Yes. All right. Yeah. So uh, upon the death of Leon Mba, uh, he became the second president of Gabon in 1967. Yeah. So that, great. Yeah. All right. So that is 2.5 for you and. I will offer you this bonus, Jacob. So this record as the world's longest serving non-royal national leader, Bongo actually held it for a very short time. Which non-royal national leader took power well before Bongo and did not officially step down until February 2008? All right. So, um, so I, I know Fidel Castro held the title for a long time. I've actually read this Wikipedia article, long list of longest serving royal na- non-royal national leaders quite a few times. So... <laughs> Of course you. I will lock in Fidel Castro. All right. Fidel Castro, I think he was on medical leave a a bit earlier, but did not officially step down until February 2008. So you do get the bonus on that. All right. All right. Now, Ryan and Jacob trying to steal from Amanda. Hal Blaine played drums on six consecutive Record of the Year Grammy winners, specifically the six between 1966 and 1971. Name any one of those records. Hal Blaine. Okay. Could you repeat the name of the drummer? Hal Blaine. Famous ashtrays. Okay. Okay. So. So, it's Grammy winners, which is broad. Yeah. Um, and which I don't know off the top of my head. I also and, don't know, like, what act Hal Blaine would have been associated with. Yeah. So, this is the bad. Grammys, the Grammys in the late 60s are uh, not exactly hip. It's like, yeah. this is famously not going to be any Beatles song. Um, uh, so, let's think of, like, jazz standards from the late 60s. Uh... Yeah, sorry. That's my that that is honestly my weakest point in '60s popular music. So yeah, I mean, so I don't really like. Yeah, I'm also not great on like jazz standards. I can say some names, or maybe it's like just re- really non avant garde pop. Yeah, they could also be that. Just like sh- shit, like the Carpenters, <laughs> like like you you music Republicans liked at the time. Yeah, um, like I mean Labor Day, American Bandstand, like well I guess Phil Spector is kind of revel- is kind of uh, on guard for the time. Um, but like what you'll like, guess? Could you repeat the time window we're working with? Yeah, 1966 to 1971 inclusive. Okay. So okay, let's... so I associate Spector much more with the early 60s than the yeah. late but it's a, it sounds like this guy was like a session musician somewhere yeah but I, as a jazz drummer his name really doesn't ring any bells yeah. and so. i don't know that he's a jazz drummer he could be just like a random drummer 
like a maybe, pop drummer. Maybe he was like a Motown or like some British record labels session drummer just throwing things at the wall here. Yeah, unlikely to be unlikely to be Motown, given that yeah, the previous was Motown. And uh, like British stuff probably isn't winning Grammys. Yeah, I don't know. Like I'm trying to think maybe of like specific songs that like made use of a lot of session musicians. Like I don't know, maybe this is like early Philadelphia soul or something. At this point, I mean we're yeah, going into things probably. where I don't know song titles, so I think we yeah, just you're absolutely correct. So like, like let's let us let us go with like my Republican idea and say Ballad of the Green Berets. Sure. <laughs> Alright. You're locking in Ballad of the Green Berets? Sure. Sure. Yeah, you you guys are really uh leaning hard toward the idea that the Grammys are uh super out of touch and conservative, which I'm not sure is correct, but I'll just pass it over to Amanda. Um, okay. I think the Ballad of the Green Berets was actually a little bit earlier, like 65, but I don't blame you for guessing that. Um, I don't know, but I just had, while you guys were talking, I just had this weird feeling come to me that, like, there's this weird song that, we were talking about weird, like, non-avant-garde pop and random songs. You know it would qualify that and that all of a sudden just sounded like it might have won a record of the year and it would have been released around that time it is a song by the new vaudeville band called winchester cathedral so i'm gonna say that all right uh, you're going with winchester cathedral Yes. So, um, I mean, the the I think even during that period were a little bit toward avant-garde. They did, in fact, give Album of the Year to Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. But although the, I don't think the Beatles ever won Record of the Year, but during that time, it was artists who are still fairly respected today. Uh, the first one was Herb Alpert and Tijuana Brass for A Taste of Honey and uh, Strangers in the Night by uh, Frank Sinatra. And then the next four years, two acts um, won twice each in those years. In 68 and 70, it was The Fifth Dimension, first for Jimmy Webb's uh, Up, Up, and Away, and then a song from the musical Hair, Aquarius, Let the Sunshine In. And the other two during that period were won by, still fairly well-respected, Simon and Garfunkel. The songs were uh, Mrs. Robinson and Bridge Over Troubled Water. All right, so no harm, no foul on that. And we go into question eight for Amanda and Jacob trying to steal from Ryan. In 2004, Romanian President Ion Iliescu announced there would be no change to his nation's flag, despite complaints to the UN by what other nation? Mm. Okay, so flags that are similar to Moldova's. Now, to wait, Romania. Why, sorry, why? No, Romania's. Sorry, Romania. sorry. <laughs> um, so yeah, Romania's. I, for, Red, for, blue, and yellow. Yeah, Freudian slip. Moldova's flag is very similar to Romania's, but but a flag that's also a tricolor. I know the same colors. I'm not sure if they're in the same order or not, but is Chad. Would, would they care about Romania's flag, you think? I mean, like, African countries can be, like, very prickly about issues like this. See, like, a Swatini recently changing their name to, like, sound less like Switzerland. <laughs> Why it was? I remember that name. Yeah, like, the, the king of Swaziland was, like, complaining that, that he was sick of having his country mistaken for Switzerland, so he changed his name to, to Ace Swatini. Honestly, it just made his country sound more like a website to me. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Anyway. So, yeah, I, I would say Chad. This is giving since, me flashbacks like, to our other discussion about Chad. Since, like, Chad is much, much more similar than Moldova's is. Okay. Well, um, sure. That's fine. That's fine with me. All right, Chad. All right, locking in Chad. So, uh, yes. Yeah. Last time you were, you two were on the opposite sides of a Chad question. This time you're on the same side of a question where the answer is Chad. Okay. Yay! 
Good job. Okay, so this next one right. goes to uh, Ryan and Amanda trying to steal from Jacob. Right. So that's... Do I get a bonus? Sorry, what? Oh, uh, no, yeah, no, there's... Yeah, the bonuses are kind of random, and because I, I wrote your question at the last second, I didn't have many opportunities to insert them for you. Yep, that's fine. <laughs> so last time, Jacob complained that my African history questions did not have film tie-ins, so uh, here's here's one that does. Okay. All right. As depicted in the 1987 film Cry Freedom, following the death in police custody of Stephen Biko, his friend and fellow activist Donald Woods fled by disguising himself as a priest and crossing the border into what nation? Okay, so there's a limited section of answers here. Yep. Um crossing the border in 19 a country that would be friendly to south african distance in 1987 was was namibia friendly to south african dissidents uh i'm thinking so namibia let's see i guess i don't have this map completely perfect i don't have it completely perfect either i'm thinking of countries that i know are in the vicinity and that i'm pretty sure border south africa yeah i think my map is not perfect either (laughs) yeah i think namibia i'm just trying to get a sense of what our options are yeah Um, Uh, my first thought was angola oh sorry what Uh, i was gonna say my first thought was angola um because and angola is in the middle of a civil war but you could kind of i think if i'm remembering the geography of the civil war well enough i think it, it would be possible for him to escape into like friendly territory so you think the civil war would be between someone who was not friendly and someone who would be friendly yeah yeah exactly like i'm gonna forget the order here but i think like unida would be unida is backed by basically communist countries i think is the order so i think they would be anti-apartheid um and they control land bordering south africa but this is so i think it could be angola okay do we want to entertain any other possibilities the other one i thought of, i think botswana borders south africa as well botswana borders south africa botswana is relatively politically stable then um i they they're actually probably a decent guess okay like yeah they're fairly politically stable i don't know what their political orientation is towards the south african government i should i like <laughs> i wrote a, I, I wrote a paper on like botswana government in college okay. um I, I actually think Angola is probably the best bet here because I think most of the other regional governments would have some sort of treaty with South, South Africa. And if there was a civil war, that would kind of tear all that up. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. It's kind of like there's not a great option, but the country without a functioning government is the best option for to escape to, <laughs> sure. be okay. my guess. So yeah, let's lock in Angola. Yeah, that sounds good. All right. So uh, I, I didn't actually mention South Africa or apartheid in the question, but I think we all are familiar enough with Stephen Biko to yes. that I didn't have this. Biko, Biko, Biko. <laughs> yeah. I'll uh, pass this over to Jacob now. Yeah. So you you were you were obviously on the right track, but there was another Lusophone country that bordered South Africa, having a civil war at the time, but the communists won marginally earlier. <laughs> And that would be Mozambique, which was also like famed as a refuge for the ANC that they used to conduct a lot of their guerrilla campaigns. Okay. So I will say Mozambique. All right. So um, I was a little thrown when you said Angola, Ryan, because in today's map, Angola doesn't actually border South Africa uh, because Namibia is in between. But I think Namibia actually yeah. only 
and in 1990. So arguably at that time, yeah. it would have been would have been so very hard to be because of the uh, because of the desert. But um, I yeah. guess technically there was a border at that time. Yeah, yeah there was. N- Namibia only became independent once South once apartheid fell, and before that it was a South African colony. Yeah, and South Africa sends troops through Namibia to fight in the Angolan civil war. Yeah, they absolutely did. So this but it would, it would still have been a little difficult for some, especially yeah. since the population in South Africa is kind of concentrated on the coast. It would be a very long way to go. It would be a relatively long way to any of yeah. those countries. From yeah. the coast, actually the shortest country to get to, albeit the least logical if you're trying to escape from South Africa, would be Lesotho. Yeah. Uh, and in fact, yeah. as depicted in Cry Freedom, uh, where he was played by Kevin Klein, Donald Woods did disguise, sneak into the border, into Lesotho, after which uh, the Lesotho government actually put a diplomatic official on the plane that flew him out, so South Africa would not be able to interfere with it. Mm. Oh, nice. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, should have had that. I actually, when we were discussing, I thought, like, should we think of the little tiny, the now Eswatini and Lesotho? But I was like, it's gonna be a bigger. Co- I don't. I shouldn't even mention those. Those are with. Those are like right in there. Yeah, I wouldn't have. I, I wouldn't have thought of it for like the same security reasons. Right, and you probably, I, if I had said that, you would have been like, why would you do that? You'd yeah. Be right. Why would you do that? <laughs> well, yeah. Yeah, it's a fun historical story. All right, so this is the end of the first round. We have scores of Amanda, 5.0, Ryan, 6.2, Jacob, 6.4. And now the next round, we will move the point values up. Four points for a steal, three points if you get it as a specialist, and if you do happen to get a bonus, two points. All right? All right. This next one goes to Ryan and Jacob trying to steal from Amanda. Jenny Piccolo, the licentious friend of Joni Cunningham, frequently mentioned but left unseen for several seasons on Happy Days, eventually did appear on screen and was portrayed by the daughter of which legendary TV funny man? All right. Oh, my God. Happy Days questions are back. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And and as promised, I've I've stayed true to my word and not watched Happy Days since the last taping. I'm so, against studying for any form of trivia. Well, not any form, but most forms of trivia competition. Yeah. Um, so who are some TV funny men who are probably around in the 50s or so? Yeah, exactly. That's that's kind of where we're at. Um, I, I have Tonight Show hosts, and that's about it. Is Rodney Dangerfield that old? I don't think he is. I don't think he is. I also don't know if he's on TV. Since, like, I, I know they made a sitcom where, like, yeah. They, where, like, there was a little girl who could, like, su- who could, like, summon Rodney Dangerfield to give her advice whenever she was in trouble that aired in the, that aired in the 80s. Okay. About, like, um, <laughs> I, I think it was called Where's Rodney? <laughs> About like, about like, Reiner? Is he that old? Is maybe like Henny Youngman? Is he that old? I don't know. He's the only person we're mentioning where I'm certain that like he is that old. Okay, I am certain he's funny. I don't know if he's on TV. Oh, the TV part. Yeah, that's maybe I like. Know Carl, six... I know Carl Reiner's on TV and he creates funny things. I don't know if he's that old. He also maybe has a like, famous son. So maybe like we're talking about a famous daughter here, though, right? Yeah. Maybe like. Well, famous and like. With some degree of, like, remove. With some degree of air quotes. Yeah. So, like, what I'm thinking is maybe, like, one of the old talk show hosts, like, uh, Dick Cavett, um, Sid Caesar. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. Like, par, maybe... 
maybe Sid Caesar. He is his name stirs like associations of com with comedy for me. I I know he like ran a famous comedy variety show in the fifties. Yeah, that that seems to qualify for on TV and funny in the fifties. Yeah. So I don't know. Do you want to go with that? I have nothing better, at least as far as we know right now. So let's say Sid Caesar. All right. You're locking, which one are you locking in? Sid Caesar. Sid Caesar. All right. I can see a generational divide, Jacob, in how you pronounce <laughs> Dick Cavett's name. <laughs> Dick Cavett. Yeah, like, I've only read that name, never actually heard it, so... Yeah, wow. Well, well, all right, I'll uh, pass this over to Amanda. It's, I'm just going to relish for a moment the sweet, sweet feeling of not having my question stolen that I also know the answer to, and it feels really good. Um, So the daughter's name, her name is, uh, you guys thought of some great names, and it's a guy that's a little more obscure than that, like not obscure, but more obscure than the guys you were talking about, I would say probably. Her name was Kathy Silvers. Her dad's name was Phil Silvers. And I don't know, this seems like the type of thing that might amuse your guest that he went from Biko to Bilko. Uh, <laughs> Phil Silvers played Sergeant Bilko. That was uh, one of his big uh, character things. So I'll say Phil Silvers. All right. And uh, well, last week we talked a lot about Zero Mostel and uh, Phil Silvers played Lycus in the 1966 film version of Funny Thing Halfway to the Forum. In the 70s, he actually played Pseudolus in the revival on Broadway and won a Tony. Um, but yeah, if you look at the list of actually of best comedy series Emmy winners, Phil Silver's show actually defeated I Love Lucy several times. It was quite acclaimed in its day. Somehow, I Love Lucy dominated syndication in the U.S. In the U.K., the Phil Silver show became repeated all the time by the BBC. They basically kind of like would just show it around the clock anytime there was a hole in their schedule to the... <laughs> The odd effect that, uh, yeah, that the show and Phil Silvers are actually probably more famous even today in the UK than in the US, even though he was 100% American. Huh. You know, guess, did the Biko-Bilko thing occur to you at all when you were... No, it it didn't consciously occur to me, but um, you never know what was going on subconsciously. Yeah. (laughs) All right. So Amanda and Jacob now stealing from Ryan. This comes right from my data analysis class. My textbook was just delivered from Amazon. All right. (laughs) There are two main types of quantitative data. Interval data, in which the zero point is arbitrary, and what other kind of data in which the zero point is meaningful? Okay, so like you said, interval data and... Interval is where the zero point is uh, not meaningful. What is it called when the zero point is meaningful? Crap, it's been too long since AP stat. Uh, like, what about something like baseline or something like that? Because something it's, it means the point where it starts is meaningful. Yeah, it's it's like meaningful because it's because you're looking at the proportions of the data rather than just the interval. So is this like ratio or something? Okay, that could be something like that. Or is there any reason not to say proportional itself? Is that I mean that doesn't exactly sound like a term that rolls off the tongue to me, but it could be. Yeah. I, I don't know, just ratio seems to ring marginally more of a bell for me from senior year of high school than proportional does in this regard, but I could be wrong. Okay, Um. yeah, that that's fine with me. Sure, ratio. All right, ratio. So as you said, what makes it different is that uh, because a zero point is meaningful, you can look at proportions between, uh, between two data points or their ratio, hence the name ratio data. Cool. All right, good job, Jacob. All right. Hell yeah, subconscious. <laughs> 
All right. So Ryan's falling a little behind there, but hopefully uh, might be able to make it up on the next question, which goes to Ryan and Amanda trying to steal from Jacob. Okay. All right. Back to uh, Friedrich Durenmott after last week. Here's another question about him. His first major play was about the fall of the Western Roman Empire in AD 476. Its central character is a heavily fictionalized version of which emperor? Um, the fall of the Western Roman Empire. So... It's going to be one of the late empires, or late emperors. I'm not good at, well, I'm not good at Roman emperors in general. Uh, mm, yeah. Uh, I'm trying to think of, like, I can come up with anyone who actually makes historical sense. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, or who would be a popular enough name or somebody that they would want to make a fictionalized version of, you know? Yeah, my other thought is, like, picking some earlier emperor who is commenting on the fall. Right, that's a possibility. Um, Like, I know Hadrian's a popular literary figure, or, like, Augustus, although I don't mm-hmm. think it's Augustus. Um, but um, yeah, I don't, have a, I don't have, like, a good sense here. Yeah. Um, I don't really either, because like I'm only thinking of like from like I'm thinking of Eastern Roman Empire, and that was Justinian, and I was like, because Justinian yeah. came, and I was like, nope, he's the other side. Yeah, and like it's like you know Theodoric and Alaric sacking Rome, but I don't remember the names of the emperors then. Um, I don't know, maybe we say Hadrian and hope it's that. <laughs> okay, I have no idea. So yeah, at least we aren't eliminating any like contemporaneous names. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Silver lining. <laughs> like, oh, that was on our short list. We didn't yeah. Short list. <laughs> Although watch, it'll be one of the names, the few names that we see. Yeah, it'll be like, it'll be like Augustus. It'll be a different. Uh, oh, yeah. A, a, okay. Logical. Okay, Hadrian, final answer. All right, Jacob. All right, so I know this this play is called something. It's it, its title includes the word Augustus, but that's not referring to the actual Augustus. It's it's referring Thank to the last God. Roman emperor. <laughs> it's referring to the last Roman emperor, Romulus Augustulus. So I will say Romulus Augustulus. I'm reasonably certain of this. All right, All right. Yeah. yeah. I think it's often presented in English as Romulus the Great, but it's not referring to Romulus, the founder of Rome. It's referring to the very ironically named, uh, in light of that, last uh, emperor of the Western Roman Empire. Romulus Augustulus. So that is correct for Jacob. All right. Getty aired again. (laughs) Okay. So that's three points on that for Jacob. And now Ryan and Jacob trying to steal from Amanda. The urban contemporary gospel group Edwin Hawkins Singers had their second U.S. top 10 hit in 1970, backing Melanie on the Vietnam War protest song Lay Down Candles in the Rain. Their first top 10 hit was one year earlier, and it was an arrangement of what hymn, originally written in the 18th century and repopularized by Sister Act 2 back in the habit. Oh, God, I literally just listened to this last week. Uh, but what's the title? Uh, I, was I know I'll Take You There was like some gospel group from right around that time, but that doesn't sound like a hymn title. Yeah. Uh, um. So hymns from the 1700s that are in Sister Act 2. Um, oh crap! It's. I mean, it, I remember hymns. I read I read it in a Pitchfork article about gospel in the early seventies. Okay. It was a song that I immediately knew, but I didn't know the title of. Uh, yeah. God damn it! I do not think I'm gonna be much help here, unfortunately. I don't know. It might be. I'll take you there. That's the best I've got. Sorry. Okay. So your answer I'll is I'll take you there. All right, Amanda. Yeah. yeah. 
Um, I'll Take You There is by the Staple Singer, which I always wonder why they were like, ain't no smiling faces, was like, why would there be no smiling faces in heaven? Uh, but it's because ain't no smiling faces lying to the races, the rest Bye. of that. I heard the song first when I was a little kid, so I didn't quite fully understand it. Anyway, um, interestingly, one of my other wheelhouse subjects is the Sister Act movies, because I loved the heck out of those as a kid. Mostly the first one, as most of the world did, but also the second one. And Wesley, very into his African history, but meek voice sang lead on Oh Happy Day. So this was not a Happy Days question. It was an <laughs> Oh Happy Day happy question. Day. <laughs> Nice. Yeah, that's absolutely it. Okay. Yeah. All right. So, Amanda, again, uh, this is a good reversal of last time. You're getting lots of things not stolen from you. It and really that- is. <laughs> <laughs> like, even though I'm not winning, I think I'm still behind Jacob, but it's... I think you're, you are winning right now. That feels really good. <laughs> it's a nice reversal, yes. Mm-hmm. All right. Amanda and Jacob now trying to steal from Ryan. Whose surname has been redacted from this excerpt from Michael Lewis's The Undoing Project? Here's a quote. Uh, and there's a quote within the quote, and, and I'm going to be asking you to identify who says the quote within the quote, just so you know. Okay. All right. A year after the Houston Rockets failed to draft Jeremy Lin, they began to measure the speed of a player's first two steps. Jeremy Lin had the quickest first move of any player measured. Yep. He was explosive and was able to change direction far more quickly than most NBA players. Quote, he's incredibly athletic, said X, but the reality is that every censored person, including me, thought he was unathletic, and I can't think of any reason for it other than he was Asian. Okay, so... Okay, now... I censored... The word I censored was the F word. It wasn't a clue. I, I figured it was probably something something like that. Okay, so are we thinking that it might be like a manager or owner of the Rockets or another player or or maybe a NBA commentator? Uh, yeah, I'm absolutely lost here. Like, I don't follow the NBA at all. Oh, no. Probably should. Um, I do not really follow the NBA at all either. Uh, the only basketball I watch is Gonzaga for March Madness, pretty much. Mm. <laughs> I say let's just give Ryan his points. Well, we're going to guess something. I mean, he's going to get his points, but we're going to guess something before he gets them. I don't have anything to guess. Okay, well then, well, here's a thought. I don't know. He said, including me. Is there any weird chance that, like, Yao Ming would have said that? You know, the Chinese basketball player? Or would that just be too weird? What do you think? That's that's actually not a terrible idea. Let's just say that. Okay, okay, Yao Ming. All right, okay. And uh, we'll now pass it over to Ryan. Okay, so I don't know this exact quote. But the person who would be saying this is actually actually has been in the news recently because he made he tweeted a statement of support for protesters in Hong Kong. Oh, and yeah. that's created a huge firestorm about the NBA's dealings with China because the Chinese government has taken offense to this and the NBA is suddenly embroiled in a huge PR fiasco with it in China. Yeah, um, yeah. And that's that would be the Rockets GM at the time and current GM. And that's Daryl Morey. I'm not 100 percent it's him, but it would make a whole lot of sense. So, final answer. Yeah, so their current GM, possibly not their future GM for much longer. That would but, be a uh, shame, because he did the right thing. Yeah, there's, there's a lot of people, like, saying, a lot of Americans saying that, you know, he said something that's, you know, true, and, like, he has the right to say, but the NBA has, like, 10 to 15% of its business from China, so there's... So they're very uh, invested, yeah. Yeah. All right, so, uh, okay, question now, because uh, Ryan's currently in last place, and there are fewer bonuses for him because his questions are written at the last second. There was a bonus attached to this 
technically, because he it wasn't stolen from him. Would you guys mind if I offered it to him anyway for two points? Uh, sure. Sure. Since like right. he missed out on his bonus last time. All right. So here's your uh, your bonus, Ryan. Yeah. Speaking yeah. of cognitive biases, which two men? You need both names. Is the Undoing Project primarily, a, or which two men are the Undoing Project primarily about? Or is actually I don't know which word to use there. <laughs> okay. Let me read that again. Speaking of cognitive biases, which about which two men is the Undoing Project? Yes. Okay. So which two men are the subject of the Undoing Project? So it's gonna be somebody, or it's gonna be two people who people basically misjudged. Um, it's not necessarily going to be Jeremy Lin, or well, it's probably not gonna be Jeremy Lin. Uh, but it's not necessarily going to be sports. Michael Lewis talks a lot about different, about a range of topics. Um, I think this is a fairly recent book because I remember hearing that Lynn quote somewhat recently. So I'm going to guess like every other book written in the past three years, it's going to be about, one of them is going to be Donald Trump. Um, and then let's see, who's another person? Who might be who there might be cognitive biases about, um, kind of like people misjudging them. That Michael Lewis would be writing, and he writes about sports, politics, finance. Could be sports. I mean, Steph Curry and Donald Trump would be a really galaxy brain book. Um, I don't know if he's that. I don't know if he's that kind of writer. Uh, let's see. I don't think it's another politics person. Maybe it's like it's not even basketball. I don't really. Oh, maybe it's like Roger Goodell. I'll be. Eh. That'll be some, that'll make some sense, I guess. I don't know. I have nothing better. I'll say Roger Goodell and Donald Trump. All right. So, uh, yeah, you uh, kind of uh, took the wrong angle on it at the beginning. The other big trend in popular uh, popular nonfiction now from Malcolm Gladwell and somewhat Michael Lewis is uh, writing about behavioral science. When it comes to cognitive biases, uh, the two men who put together that, who basically were the founders of that field. Uh, <laughs> is it, is it I think I think your your girlfriend could probably uh, yeah and it's it's Kahneman and Tversky right? it's like Kahneman and Tversky yeah okay. yeah this All this right. look took a more personal look at them as opposed to generally looking at their uh, research which most books focus on okay yeah that's interesting yeah I, I should have gone for that I I just kind of assumed it was it was more outward focusing pop psych. All right. So now Orion and Amanda trying to steal from Jacob. Okay. Although he was not a member of the JTP, JTP, which major figure of literary modernism published his first poem at age 11 in the local newspaper of Jenkintown, Pennsylvania. This was long before he ever set foot in a Paris metro station. Okay. Uh, so I'm assuming this is, that's a reference to In a Station of the Metro, okay, um, okay. which is an Ezra Pound poem. Okay. Um, I'm trying to think of other, I, I don't really get the JTP thing. Well, I mean, it, the way it's a Goldberg's reference. It's a what? It's a reference to the Goldbergs. Like Goldbergs is set in Jenkintown, and one character's friends are the Jenkintown Posse or JTP. Uh, and they all respond, JTP. Okay. Oh, yeah, I, okay. I, 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 Appreciated it, you'll guess. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, yeah. I mean, well, I haven't I mean, seen the Goldbergs, but I feel pretty confident in this being about in a station of the metro. Okay, sure. That sounds good to me then. Okay, I'll lock in Ezra Pound. All right, yeah. Won't won't try and draw out the suspense. It is Ezra Pound. <laughs> and all right, even without that uh, extra bonus, Ryan's moved into second place now. But now Ryan and Jacob get to work together to steal from Amanda. What one-word interjection completes this dialogue exchange in Pulp Fiction? There's the dialogue. Jules. Nobody's going to hurt anybody. We're all going to be like three little Fonzies here. And what's Fonzie like? 
Come on, Yolanda. What's Fonzie like? Yolanda. Cool. Jules. What? Yolanda. Cool. What's the next word Jules says? Well, uh, thankfully, although I've not seen Pulp Fiction, I have heard Pulp Fiction when I was in college. Some of my friends were watching it on a laptop in the same room as me. Nice. So I have I have heard the dialogue. <laughs> Unfortunately, I do not have a perfect memory. Um, oh, no. I, yeah, that'll I, make this a lot I've easier. Only watched the, I've only watched the first half hour of Pulp Fiction, and this is not in that. Okay, so I guess we don't know, but that doesn't mean we can't guess. Yeah, um, you're right. So what would be your reaction to being told Fonzie is cool? Uh, yeah, yes, he is cool. Astute observation. Uh, That's probably not it. Uh, imagine you're a Quentin Tarantino character. What would be your reaction? Uh, probably saying the N-word or something about feet. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, um, okay. Uh, maybe he just says what again. I mean, he does enjoy saying what, which I know from watching the first half hour of that movie. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, uh, okay. So, maybe we just say what. Sure. Alright, what. If you're around Jewel, you know he doesn't like when people say what. You may not want to say what again. Alright, Amanda? Yeah. (laughs) Um, could you repeat... The, the dialogue. Yeah. Jules, nobody's going to hurt anybody. We're all going to be like three little Fonzies here. And what's Fonzie like? Come on, Yolanda. What's Fonzie like? And Yolanda tentatively says, cool. Jules, what? Yolanda, cool. Jules, blank. Hmm. Like I said, my first instinct for what a Quentin Tarantino character would say would be an expletive. But since this is a podcast and Yogesh was censoring himself with an F word quote earlier, I'm guessing you would not prompt us where the answer was an F word as much as I feel like Jules would say that. Um, specifically a variant of. Um, well, I don't know this outright, obviously, either. Um, what's Fonzie like? Come on, Yolanda, what's Fonzie like? Cool? What? Cool? Hmm. These are the kind of questions that paralyze me on Learned League 2, where there's like enough there where like, I feel this is gettable if I think, you know, somewhere you're just like, you either know it or you don't. And it's like, just, I, it's like just out of reach, possibly. Um, cool? What? Cool? I'll just say right. Okay, so yeah, the other thing, what if, you, you've, you've all mentioned various trademarks of Quentin Tarantino, but of course one of the other things he's known for is astute pop culture references, like in that film, the whole conversation about uh, Arnold from Green Acres. So he obviously absorbed quite a lot of happy days and knew how the characters talk. So if you are Fonzie, if you're Fonzie, you don't just tell someone they're right. What do you say to them? You say, ah, correct mundo. <laughs> You say correctamundo. Oh. I was not aware that was a Fonz thing. Nope. But I was. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Very dramatic. Yeah. I could just not, I could not, I still cannot picture Samuel L. Jackson saying that. I've seen Pulp Fiction only once. Oh, I got, yeah. I got the sentiment, but did not. Oh, you all followed the Tarantino thread instead of the Fonzie thread there. Yeah. Oh, it is, it is painful how much sense that answer makes and that I did not get it. <laughs> all right. All right. Now, Amanda and Jacob trying to steal from Ryan. What magical artifact from the Lord of the Rings universe gave its name to a data analytics company co-founded in 2003 by Peter Thiel? Okay, I know this called. Oh, okay. It, it's like a mass surveillance company that, like, collects people's facial recognition data. So, of course, it's named after, like, the seeing stones from Lord of the Rings. It's Palantir, final answer. Oh, nice. Uh, okay. And that will get four points for both Jacob and Amanda. 
All right. Now, All right. I finish out the round. Ryan and Amanda trying to steal from Jacob. So, uh, T.S. Eliot's The Wasteland ends with a threefold repetition of what one-word Hindu prayer that Eliot loosely translates as the peace which passeth understanding. Yep, this is... Huh, we've got we've had Ezra Pound and T.S. Eliot back-to-back questions, uh, um, and Dylan's Desolation Road talks about them fighting in the captain's tower. Um, that's fun. Um, this actually I also know cold. Uh, the end it there's the repeats Shanti Shanti Shanti. Uh, okay. So. I'll say Shanti, final answer. Uh, the person you replaced was from going to Skype from India, and I wonder if how they would have done with that question. Wow. <laughs> yeah, you did uh, fine on that. And I will, for two points, I'll, I'll offer this bonus to Jacob quickly. What 1934 novel, partially derived from the author's earlier short story, The Man Who Liked Dickens, takes its title from the wasteland? All right. I also know this cold. The plot of this novel involves like a guy in the Amazon rainforest capturing a man and forcing him to read Dickens to him for the rest of his life. Yeah. So this is a handful of by Evelyn Waugh. Yeah, that's a very odd, um, out-of-nowhere ending. The whole thing is basically a more sort of like drawing room type uh, character-based drama. And then suddenly in the last chapter, he suddenly goes to the Amazon rainforest, taken captive, and has to read Dickens to an eccentric for the rest of his life. It is uh, a handful of dust. I'll show you here in a handful of dust. And with that, Jacob pulls slightly ahead. So at the end of round two, we have Amanda 27.0, Ryan 18.2, Jacob 19.4. Okay. And uh, the next question is going into the final, the super hard round. Um, and the swings are much bigger. So these are six points for a steal, five for a specialist, and three for a bonus. And we will start with... So uh, still anyone's game. And we'll start with Ryan and Jacob trying to steal from Amanda. In 1962, Petula Clark had a French language hit called Chariot, whose melody was soon repurposed for what English language song that hit number one in the U.S. in 1963? Its singer was barely 15 years old at the time. Oh, so this is a Frankie Valley song, right? Presumably. Uh, yes. So, sorry, could you repeat the question? Yeah. In 1962, Petula Clark had a French language hit called Chariot, whose melody was soon repurposed for which English language song that hit number one in the U.S. in 1963? Its singer was barely 15 years old at the time. Yeah, I'm pretty sure this is Frankie Valley, but unfortunately, I don't. Was he that young? Yeah, he was extremely young when he was a pop sensation, and it it fits the time period. Okay, so um. But I mean, if we don't, if we can't think of any Frankie Valley songs, then we should probably focus on something else. Early Frankie Valley songs that that narrows it down a lot for me. So like Walk Like a Man, Sherry. Oh, Sherry. That sounds a lot like Chariot. That is fair. Um, are there any other ones you know? Um, like that that one that goes You're just too good to be true. Can't take uh, my eyes off of you. But I don't know the title of that. That just can't take my eyes off of you. That seems likely. Yeah. But yeah. Um, Sherry would be definitely my best guess out of those since I think it might have been their first. Okay. Um, do you have any other thoughts about what song it might be? Like, not Frankie Valley? Other 15-year-olds. In I, I don't know. I, I know Frankie Valley would have been good at, like, covering a female vocal range because, like, his falsetto thing. Yeah. So if they're um, 15 and 63, that means that they're that means they're like 70 now. Yeah. So yeah, like I can't think of any other. I'm in general bad at knowing the ages of these people. Okay. So I don't know what to tell you. Sorry. All right, then let's go with Sherry. All right, Sherry, yeah. you're lucky. Yep. Amanda. Yes. 
Um, I actually went in a completely different direction when I heard this. My first thought was there was an artist called Little Peggy March. I mean, her name was just Peggy March. They, I think it was called her Little Peggy March because she was really young. And her only hit that I know of was incidentally also used in Sister Act. And it was called I Will Follow Him. And hearing that melody, like it seems like I, it's something that I could hear Tula Clark singing in French. I, I don't know if that's right either, but that's what I'm going with. All right, you're locking in I Will Follow Him? Yeah. All right, so I'm wondering, Ryan, if you were confusing Frankie Valley with Frankie Lyman, who... Ah, uh, that, might, that might actually be correct. Yeah, <laughs> notable teenager. Whoops. Right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, sorry. He was even, yeah, I think he uh, he broke Little Peggy, Peggy March's record because he, I think, was around 14 when he had his number one. But um, before that, and yeah, Frankie Valley was in his late 20s when he started having hits. But right. um, so before Frankie Lyman, I, though, I think the record for the youngest number one hit was Little Peggy March because she had just ter- uh, turned 15 when she had number one with a song from not Sister Act 2, but the original Sister Act, uh, I Will Follow Them. And it did, in fact, take its melody from the French Chariot. Nice. Uh, that's that I just like really just it job. might be a subconscious knowledge because I don't necessarily remember, but I almost do. It's like very fuzzy, like in there somewhere. That suggested was a well, a well designed question for my part. Yeah, yes, yes, yeah. it was. Good good job, you guys. You don't have to tell you. I will tell you. It was a well designed question. Good job. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Okay. So that extends Amanda's lead. And now Amanda and Jacob trying to steal from Ryan. The goaltending rule, the widening of the foul line, and the creation of the shot clock were all necessitated by the dominance of what Minneapolis Lakers star, who after his playing days were over, served as first commissioner of the ABA? Oh, hell yeah. I know this offhand. It's George Mikan. <laughs> what did you say? George Mikan. You just, just know it? Yeah. What happened, like, what happened to not knowing basketball? I, see, I mean, he's like... See, 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 like when when I was when I was four or five, my my parents bought me like a a, a sort of kids book of basketball history thing, and it featured George Mikan very prominently. That was like at the age where my dad hadn't like given up trying to talk to me about sports yet. So, <laughs> <laughs> what we talk about when we talk about sports. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so yeah, I think that was George yeah. Mikan. Okay. All right. It's a little uh, bad for us. So I think I will throw in a bonus here, although it won't be directly related. Uh, I'll pull out one of my rejected questions to use as a bonus for Ryan. Okay. Well, that's really nice. Ryan, you are getting the benefit. See, I did not get this the last oh, time no. I played. I was getting stealed from, as stolen from more than you were possibly. Oof. It was super depressing, and oh. there were no bonuses, and it was just that. Yeah, I do like <laughs> the bonus concept. Yeah. Okay, anyway, yeah. All right, so here's your bonus. It was in... 1992, the NBA players for the first time were allowed to compete in the Olympics uh, men's basketball competition. Since then, only one team other than the USA has won gold in men's basketball. Which team is it? So this is the this is in 2004. The U.S. sends uh, a team that doesn't gel quite well, uh, led by Stefan Marbury. They let's see, they lose to Puerto Rico in the. Uh, preliminary rounds led by Carlos Arroyo and then the team the team that won was let was Argentina I believe led by the golden generation with Luis Scola and Scola actually is still playing he he recently led Argentina to second place in the FIBA World Cup this past summer at the age of 39 but yeah I'm, I'm pretty sure Scola came away with a gold medal in 04 so I'll lock in Argentina all right that is uh correct and you'll get three points for that 
All right. Now, Ryan and Amanda trying to steal from Jacob. Ethiopia and Eritrea have a long-standing dispute regarding which of those nations gets to claim what famous poet. Ironically, more recent research has placed this man's ancestry in part of the Kotoko kingdom located in what is now northern Cameroon. Oof. Okay. Again, this is probably something Jacob knows. Probably. Uh, um, I, I do not know any East African poets. I'm just going to throw that out there. <laughs> yeah. Um, famous poet. East African. Man. Wow. Uh, wow. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm trying to think of like any, uh, any possible guesses. I mean, it's probably somebody pretty historical, uh, yeah. because they're not sure exactly where he lived. Sure. Okay. Okay. Actually, could you, yeah. could you repeat where they think he actually was from? So the uh, more recent research has placed his ancestry in the Kotoko kingdom located in what is now Northern Cameroon. Okay. That's interesting. The Lake so, Chad area, basically. Yeah, it's the other side of Africa. Um, so that's interesting that somebody who they would have thought was from Ethiopia, like the Horn of Africa. actually from. But it's actually from. But that actually kind of makes sense because, like, they would have used Ethiopia to mean a much broader expanse than modern-day Ethiopia. Sure. Um, and, like, modern-day Cameroon has kingdoms that could have interacted with, like, Europe. Mm-hmm. That still doesn't help with, like, actually coming up with the name of this person. Uh, I'm still feeling from correct though. Every every spare moment, I'm like, why didn't I get that? So I'm <laughs> not much help. Okay. Um, I can't even come up with a good, with a plausible answer here. Um, anything? No. Okay. Um, I'll say, let's see. I don't know. I'll say uh, Barre as, like, a... Generic answer. All right, missing part. Yeah, I mean, I, I sometimes get that too when I miss something that I really knew. It it kind of puts me in a hole, and I have difficulty concentrating on later questions. Yes, um, and but I don't feel don't feel like that hurts you any at all, Ryan, because I really <laughs> know yeah, no. poets from any corner of Africa. Really, I could not be so I I wasn't hurting you by being preoccupied. Yeah, no, that's fine. There's no way I was going to get this either. Right. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So, All right, Jack, so yeah, you have to think a bit outside of the box for this one, since you you have to remember that Alexander Pushkin had an ancestor named named Avram Ganabal, who was brought uh, as a slave to the court of Peter the Great. And I suppose they described him as being Ethiopian, but I guess his origins were murky. So I will say Pushkin. Yeah. So actually, the first person to challenge the notion that Ganabal was from the Ethio- Horn of Africa region was actually uh, Vladimir Nabokov in his when he was trans translating Eugene Onegin, and much like his theories about butterflies, this was another Nabokov theory that seemed to come out of left field and was dismissed when he suggested it much later after Nabokov's death. Other people looked into it and realized he was basically right. And yes, so this was uh, Alexander Pushkin, descendant of Abram Petrovich Ganibal. Okay. All right. I guess I could be, I did know about Ganibal, but I was not going <laughs> to Wow. Yeah. Yeah. It's really interesting. All right, so that's five points for Jacob. And now Ryan and Jacob trying to steal from Amanda. Let's see how this goes. What was the name of the six-webisode spin-off digital series that appeared on the NBC app in advance of season four of The Good Place? Shoot, shoot. I briefly listened to the podcast, but I do not I, I do not know what the name of this is. I also really do not know this. Okay, 
but presumably it's something related to the good place. So like good chat, I don't know. Good probably talk. Not, probably not that. Like it's probably some sort of thing from the show that could reasonably be some sort of companion would be my guess. Like I I don't know like. When you say good place and companion, Jen, it's the first thing that, that comes to mind for me. Yeah. I mean, so it's like, it's a six episode, it's like six webisodes. Hmm. Yeah, so they have to have some sort of content for this. So presumably it's some like side storyline from the good place that they're exploring in more detail. Like maybe something like inside the bad place. Yeah, maybe they're featuring the bad place more. I don't think they're featuring like accountants more oh maybe it's like about mindy st Clair or something yeah that i mean that could be fun that would be fun like like the adventures of mindy and derek i would definitely listen to that yeah i would extra i would very much listen to the adventures of mindy and derek so would it be called the medium place sure that seems a little obvious but yeah i don't think we're going to come up with any actual title unless it's obvious yeah so sure the medium place all right medium place yeah i'm I'm also a huge fan of uh mary beth monroe's performance as uh mindy st Clair. but sadly there is no spin-off called the medium place amanda yeah i totally would i totally would watch a series about derek's uh adventures as well i watched the entirety of this series of webisodes but i don't remember like totally internalizing the title it was all about like the interim like what the bad place was going to do like how they were going to set up the experiment how they were how they were going to try to mess up the experiment in the good place and it might just be called the bad place so i'll say the bad place all right i mean again both of those very good guesses as, as you said it was basically about setting up season four specifically the plot in season four when four humans would be chosen to uh potentially be redeemed by uh michael and uh Eleanor and the rest. Specifically, right, they don't show you in the show itself how they were chosen or how they were selected. You have to look at the top series to see the selection. <laughs> I thought of the selection, but I thought that was one of the episode titles. Uh, that does sound like a fun concept. I'd like to see that. Yeah, it was like, I mean... Yeah, it, was, it really does. It was a little one note for me. Like, I think it's good that it wasn't any longer than it was. Because a lot of just, like, bad place jokes and the kind of stuff the bad place yeah. likes and thinks are fun and stuff but it had a couple moments yeah i hate that feeling of having seen something and not being able to pull the title that's terrible <laughs> yeah it's terrible yeah. So I, I watched that whole thing like i just i because i was like oh they're all here i'll just watch it right away yeah. yeah cool all right so now amanda and jacob trying to steal from ryan who is the only player who has been on team usa in all of the last four olympic men's basketball competitions no fucking clue okay sorry <laughs> <laughs> I guess. Uh, yeah, no censored clue. I don't know. Who, who's good and has been good for a long time? Right. Carmelo Anthony probably has. And basketball, is basketball played in the Winter Olympics or the summer? Summer. Okay. Definitely so, summer. That's an amazing question, Amanda. That is an amazing question. Yeah. <laughs> this is like, this is like a factoid I vaguely heard about Carmelo Anthony, and I have no better guess. Okay, so why is that an amazing question? Because it's such a dumb question. <laughs> yes, yes. Because, Sorry. No, because seriously, the reason I ask that is that I think of basketball as a winter sport, but somehow I kind of associate it with the Summer Olympics. So that's why I... Yeah, yeah that's a good point. It is definitely a Summer Olympics thing. Thank you. Please leave that in. So yeah. <laughs> all right. Uh, what is more amusing is that don't all winter events have to like be played on ice or snow? Yeah. Yeah, I was so, imagining... Uh, an ice rink with basketball players slipping around on <laughs> that'd be great honestly yeah. 
might give the other countries other than the USA and Argentina a fighting chance. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I would totally watch hockey basketball. <laughs> Was that basketball? Like basketball? <laughs> um, okay, so the last one would have been 2016, 2012, 2008, 2004. So it has to be someone that played since 2004. Carmelo Anthony has been around about that long, probably. What made you think of him to begin with? I've just heard his name in vaguely in association with this factoid. Well, I have nothing better than a hunch on this. Do you think he's more of a winter guy or a summer guy? Pretty <laughs> <laughs> uh, important. Yeah, yeah, let's, go, let's go with that. We'll go with Carmelo Anthony. Going with Carmelo Anthony. And uh, this time we do have the cameras on, so I can see uh, Ryan's face falling. And he, oh. uh, <laughs> I'm sorry, Ryan. <laughs> yeah. They, they hit like two of the only NBA facts I know in the last two. <laughs> But, you know, I'll give you a different bonus. All right, let's let's uh, come up with this. All right, so Carmelo Anthony is one of many NBA players who went to the high school that has sent more players to the NBA than any other. Yep. Oak Hill Academy. So either say one of these two things, either the tiny unincorporated community that the school is located in or the two states that it's essentially on the border of. Okay, I think I'm more likely to remember... I think it's in Virginia. I think it's probably Virginia, North Carolina, but the tiny unincorporated community I'm pretty sure is called, it's Mouth of Something. I think it's Mouth of Wilson. So I'll say uh, Mouth of Wilson. All right. Yeah, you're right. Well, it's Mouth of Wilson in Virginia, but right next to the North Carolina border. So I'll give you three points for that. Partially yeah. making, but uh, not really making up for the uh, steal there. Yeah. And now Ryan and Amanda trying to steal from Jacob. In 1951, a man named Nathan L. Bengus wrote to T.S. Eliot, more T.S. Eliot here, inquiring about similarities between a certain Sherlock Holmes story and a scene in Murder in the Cathedral that begins, Whose was it? His who is gone. In response, Eliot stated, My use of the blank blank was deliberate and wholly conscious. Fill in those two words, uh, that two word blank. Okay. I am not that good at Sherlock Holmes stuff. I, I know a bit of Sherlock Holmes stuff. Um, I did read Murder in the Cathedral, uh, but that isn't okay. necessarily useful here. Well, can you, I mean, can you tell me a little bit about it? And I think it, it's, oh wait, oh whoops, no, wait, no, maybe I'm mixing it up. Did I read them in Pearls? And the Cathedral is the one about the murder of Thomas a Beckett. So it's like, yeah, it's a core, it's like, almost a play in that there's like a bunch of there's a chorus and there's like a christmas interlude in it but I don't, that's not really relevant for like the like specific wordplay yeah um i'm trying to think of like is there what is the like what is the crux of like the case in murder in the cathedral so thomas of beckett is betrayed by the king and they send four knights to kill him mm-hmm. um and the knights each have their say i believe but let's see I don't think, um, sorry, could you repeat the phrase in question, like the phrase from Murder in the... So, so just the beginning of the scene, it begins, whose was it? His who is gone. So one character says, whose was it? And another says, his who is gone. Mm. Okay. So we're looking for a two-word phrase that describes what what is happening there. Okay, this is my use. Of, you said my use of the blank blank was what deliberate, deliberate and wholly conscious. So basically, the guy was asking if they both took it from an earlier source, and Elliot was responding that no, he 100% took it from the Sherlock Holmes story. Okay. Okay. So my use of the who was. 
Uh, yeah, I'm not really sure what could go in here. I mean, trying to think of just like different Sherlock Holmes stories um, from the Baskerville Redheaded League sign of four. Final problem doesn't really make sense. It's a two word phrase. I think of any two word phrases associated with Sherlock Holmes. Yeah, final problem isn't terrible. Okay. Okay, we'll, we'll hang on to that. I don't really know. Like, I'm not coming up with anything. The thing my brain says is most logical there is Holmes reference, which <laughs> is... <laughs> my use of the Holmes reference was deliberate. <laughs> it would be very straightforward, right? <laughs> my use of the Holmes reference was deliberate, guys. <laughs> um, okay, um, well, I mean, I'm trying to think of other... Because the other Sherlock Holmes things I can think of are either one word or more than two words. Yeah, yeah the only other two-word thing I can think of is speckled band. But that, I don't think. I don't know of any way that would relate to the things you've described in the cathedral. Yeah, I mean, it could theoretically be used for the murder, but like that, I don't think that's <laughs> how it went down. Okay, I mean, I mean, we can we can entertain it if you think it's possible. I don't. I don't think so. Okay, I mean, should we just say final problem then? Yeah, I don't have anything better. I mean, trying to. I'm trying to see if there's anything we're overlooking. Like, um, okay, yeah. I mean, I don't. I don't think it's murderous orangutan. So. Yeah. Um, Yeah, I guess let's just say final problem. I think the orangutan was Poe. I confused. That's one of those that I always forget who wrote it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but the, um, yeah, yeah, so so it is appropriation of uh, low culture. T.S. Eliot was basically the Quentin Tarantino of his day. Mm. (laughs) So that's good uh, deep knowledge, but um, not, this is super high round. It's not quite deep enough. Jacob? This is indeed super hard. I have read Murder in the Cathedral and the majority of Sherlock Holmes stories, and this rings no bells whatsoever. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah, should give it a Nobel Prize. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I'm trying to run through ter- two-word Holmes titles in my head, like Soot Copper Beaches, Greek Translator. None yeah, of yeah. Conan Doyle was very fond of that formula. There are going to be a lot of two-word titles to run through. Yes. All right. And as I, as I said, I'm not finding anything. So I I suppose we'll just pass in this one. All right. So uh, this this you have to go back to uh, early in Holmes' career before he even had met Watson. But he tells Watson at one point about one of his early cases. If you think about that sort of um, intoning of whose was it, his who is gone. It sounds very much like a ritual, a ritualized exchange. Oh, a Musgrave ritual. God damn it. It's part of the role of the Musgrave family, Holmes's friend, who he uh, goes to investigate before he's a really professional detective in The Adventure of the Musgrave Ritual. And what T.S. Eliot wrote was, my use of the Musgrave Ritual was deliberate and wholly conscious. Huh. All right. That's interesting. Yeah. That's cool. Now we get into the last cycle now. So each of you is just going to have one more specialist question remaining and two chances <coughs> to steal. All right. All right. Let's do this. Okay. All right. So Ryan and Jacob trying to steal from Amanda. Linda Pearl is known to millennials as Helene, Pam Beasley's mother on The Office, and perhaps to their parents as Charlene, Ben Matlock's daughter on Matlock. But to Happy Days fans, she's either Richie's girlfriend in season two or the single mother who Fonzie settles down with in season 10, both characters who were basically written out with no explanation. <laughs> Just name either of those characters. All yeah. right. Well, and again, with fictional characters, usually first name is going to be sufficient. Yeah, I mean, based on the plot descriptions that I've heard, this doesn't sound like a very good show. So <laughs> it is a great show. He's picking some obscure stuff, and some of the episodes, the later ones, were not as good. Okay. Okay. So let's pick so, some. Seven what, okay. 
So I, I know I know a few female Happy Days characters' <laughs> names, but none of these are going to be correct. Yeah, we shouldn't think of like characters whose names we know because these sound like pretty minor people. Absolutely, and, and this is like supposed to be difficult math. Yeah. So I don't know. I'm going to go with maybe Jenny or something. Ah. Uh, so one of the things was that Jennifer doesn't get common as a name until like the 70s and 80s, really. Like as a baby. Right. So it will be less likely that somebody will be named Jenny as like sure, sure. as a character on Happy Days. So, but I don't know what a good older name would be. So, so the father is Italian, right? So maybe yeah. so is the person he's dating. So like Maria or like I don't know. I don't know. I mean, what's the other names? Cynthia. I don't know. Like race sciences failed us. I I don't know where go. I don't know where to go from this. Yeah. Um. Okay. I like Cynthia as a good '70s female name. Yeah. So do I. All right. Let's go with that. Let's say Cynthia. All right. Yeah. That's a, a good guess. And yeah, I think you're right that Jenny was really popularized by the novel and movie Love Story, which came out in 1970. Generally, Happy Days was said earlier, although toward the end they weren't super historically accurate there. But, yeah. Uh, things that made the show downhill. They kind of stopped caring about that. <laughs> right, right. So Amanda? Although, interestingly, I was I wanted to be like, it's not going to be Jenny, because you already asked about Jenny Piccolo, but... Oh, yeah, that's right. There was a Jenny on that show. I, yeah. Yeah, okay. Well, I do I do know the second character she played, Linda Pearl. Oddly, it is a name that was not really popular until the 80s. Uh, his girlfriend's name was Ashley, and the last name, I believe, was Finster, Ashley Finster. And you'll guess, is there any... I, I cannot think of the other one. I don't know if there's any hint you could give that I could try to jog my memory or like if you know from like what episode she was in or uh, she was in five episodes in season two so five episodes yeah and who and what did what was your description who did she play she was basically just like Richie's girlfriend they briefly tried having him as a steady girlfriend I guess they liked the actress and uh-huh. then she just they clearly liked the actress a lot because they brought her back in a completely different era of the show eight years later yeah and in those days you didn't have cold audiences who would you know care about a thing like that would be like we've seen her eight years ago yeah yeah so i'll say ashley finster but i'm curious what the other one is remember that for fictional characters first names generally are sufficient and well i mean not- ash ashley i was just i i said ashley but i said i think her last name was finster so i was just throwing that in if it's wrong it's wrong but my answer is ashley i believe her name was actually ashley fister i didn't want another repeat of the jerry Parrish thing from last week right right yeah yeah, yeah, that was uh, just, I was just like, I was adding, like, my answer is Ashley, but I think her last name was Finster, so, yeah. All right, so that's fine then. And her daughter, I think, was played by uh, Heather O'Rourke, who, uh, and her fell name vic- was Heather. <laughs> who fell victim to the poltergeist curse shortly after, tried, died tragically, yeah. Tragically. Yeah, um, but yeah, her name was Ashley Fister. Her earlier character was just called Gloria. I don't think she ever had a last name. Oh. All right, so you'll get five points for leaving off the last name there. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Now, Amanda and Jacob trying to steal from Ryan. There's a long quote right. in this, but it's a penultimate question, so you only have to concentrate a little longer. Whose surname has been redacted from this excerpt of an opinion piece by Peter Moss, very recently published by The Intercept? Let me tell you something about the Serb camps in Bosnia that X, who never visited Bosnia during the war or after it, does not admit. They were concentration camps. I visited them during the war, which I covered for the Washington Post. I talked with prisoners inside the camps, as well as survivors, the United Nations, war crimes tribunal at the Hague sentenced Serbs to lengthy prison terms for the crimes committed there. Let me tell you something else about 
about Bosnia. The Muslims had nothing like those industrial-scale camps where thousands of prisoners were brought in, tortured, and killed. The position that X adopts, everyone was doing it, is a dodge that would be funny if it weren't so evil. Were some atrocities committed by Muslim troops? Yes, but equating a small number of random crimes with a systemic and massive number is a transparent form of deception and deflection. That's what apologists do. Oh, shit. So, the guy who's in the news now for, like, doing a bunch of Bosnian genocide apologetics is Peter Hanka. And, like, you, you said a recent Intercept piece? Yep. So, if it's, like, incredibly recent, and you said you wrote these questions pretty quickly, like, before the match... So it's with so it's so it's within the realm of possibility that that this was literally published yesterday. <laughs> so I'll go with like the probably the most I would go with probably the most topical Milosevic apologist here, but that's just me. That, that's just me starting off on another topic that I happen to have some expertise in, even though it's not on my list of expertise. Uh, yeah, that's fine with me. All right, let's go with Peter Hanka. Topical Milosevic apologist will probably be my next pub trivia team name. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's, uh, I didn't, it's, it's hard with stuff like that. You either, it's, it's going to be very hard or very easy, and you don't know whether to put it in the easy round or the hard round. Um, yeah. Yeah, I think there's, there's some stuff here where, like, the Hanka thing and the Mori thing have just been, like, all over my Twitter feed the past couple of days. That's, like, the first thing that I think of. Uh, yeah, like, I guess you're either online or you're not. Yeah. Yeah, I think when I when I have the the younger millennials on the show, I'll just have to assume that they're online. <laughs> so at this point, the uh, outcome is pretty much set, but there's uh, one last question for Pride, and this is, we'll first go to Ryan and Amanda trying to steal from Jacob. Okay. The revolt against early 20th century Speaker of the House Joe Cannon was led by what Nebraska congressman, who later served four terms as a Republican senator, before thanks to his support of the New Deal, he had to win his fifth and final term in 1936 as an independent. He's also known for co-sponsoring the 1932 legislation outlawing yellow dog contracts and for spearheading the creation of the Tennessee Valley Authority, and he's one of the eight senators profiled in JFK's Profiles in Courage. Yeah. Uh, oh, oh, I think this came up at CO. It's, it's our second round, I want to say. Or no, it was our first round. And Boyang buzzed on this Profiles in Courage thing. I'm like, oh, okay, you've read Profiles in Courage, you get points. I think it's Robert Wagner. Okay. And then the Wagner Act is what bans yellow dog contracts. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I'm not going to think of him otherwise, I don't think. But yeah, I think my specific comment after this game was, I get that reading Profiles in Courage would get me points in Quiz Bowl, but I don't care that much about getting points in Quiz Bowl. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Understandable. Okay. All right, so you're locking in Robert Wagner? Yep. Okay. Oh, oh, wait. Oh, rip. I just remember. Yeah, Ryan. Yeah. Wait, wait, okay. Do you want to give Ryan another chance to answer, Jacob? I mean, he did lock it in, but... No. All right. Yeah, go for it. I want to (laughs) try. Yeah, maybe if I read Profiles in Courage, I would also remember this dude's actual name. (laughs) Yeah. So, the Wagner Act, I don't think actually banned Yellow Dog contracts. That was the LaGuardia Norris Act. Yeah. So, yeah. And I remember it was funny, like, I, I converted that question on the clue about Joseph Gurney Cannon because, like, I had earlier for, like, another quiz bowl set I was working on written a bonus on Joseph Gurney Cannon in which I'd clued George Norris. So, yeah, this is George Norris. Nice. Yeah, I mean, it was the Norris-LaGuardia Act, and this was George Norris who uh, staged his revolt in the House on St. Patrick's Day, knowing that Cannon supporters would be out and about celebrating. Uh, all right, so that, I believe, finishes the game with Ryan at 
24.1 points, Jacob at 47.4 points, and Amanda at 55.0 points. Hi, this is Future Yogesh. While scorekeeping, I accidentally gave Ryan an extra point for the Daryl Morey question, and I also dropped a tenth of a point from him somewhere. The actual final score is Amanda 55.0, Jacob 47.4, and Ryan 23.2. So Amanda is the winner, and uh, congratulations. Yeah. All right. Thank you. And so before signing off, I'll just give a final chance for everyone to just say whatever they want. And as long as it's not too long or too offensive, I will keep it in. Um, right. And we'll go in reverse order. So uh, the last place literature will have the last word. So we'll start <laughs> with the man. Oh, gosh. Um, I don't know what I want to say. It was a pleasure to not only revisit Happy Days, but also Sister Act in a couple of different ways. All right. Jacob? Yeah, congratulations to Amanda. This was a lot of fun. I enjoyed Omar Bongo coming up <laughs> since I believe he was my Twitter avatar for like a very brief period in high school. All right, your, your Twitter avatar, avatar, you said? Yeah. Thanks for the questions. Thanks for the competition. Yeah. And uh, Ryan. Uh, yeah, congratulations to Amanda. Thanks to Yogesh for writing an interesting set of questions. Thanks to Jacob for competing. Yeah, I, I, I found this very fun and look forward to competing when I'm with somebody who doesn't overlap with me as much as Jacob does. I feel like Jacob is going to be hearing that a lot. Yeah, but like specifically, I guess I, I guess I should just say when I'm not on with Jacob. <laughs> And uh, I think the past two up, there's been one kind of standout phrase that I've been able to pull is like the title of it. I'm, I wonder what the title of this episode, I'll have to listen back to it and see what jumps out as a yes. Well, a I good... mean, maybe it should be Topical Milosevic Apologist. Yeah. Oh, yes. Yes, very... that would be good. <laughs> this has been episode three of Recreational Thinking with Yogesh Routh. Thank you all for listening.